Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber, and today there is nobody alongside me because Logan is on the road. He's going to a wedding, hope that he has a good time, but couldn't make it today. And we were supposed to have a guest on to cosplay as Logan, but he unfortunately got sick today. So hopefully we'll have him back soon. But Today, you guys are stuck with me. Sucks to be you. Luckily, though, we have some really good basketball to talk about, and we have to start with what Victor Wembanyama just did last night to the Phoenix Suns. He was just the best player on the floor with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker in the fifth game of his NBA career. That is rare stuff. And of course, what makes Wemby so generationally great as a prospect is is his defensive ability. And we tried to really hammer that home throughout the draft process. Yes, his offensive skill, his comfort as a shooter, his fluidity as a mover for a guy who is seven foot five is absolutely unique. But even more so, he has physical tools on the defensive end of the floor that we have really never seen. And that is what gives him such a high floor as a player and such a high ceiling because he absolutely has a clear path to being the best defensive player on the planet. So that sort of impact is a given in any game. But I want to start with what we saw from Wemby offensively in this game because dropping 38 points, it was clearly his best offensive performance so far and it was really remarkable across the board. I thought his interior scoring was super impressive. One of the frustrations that I've expressed about his utilization in this Spurs offense is them trying to turn him too much into a wing. Yes, he has special moments as a perimeter shot maker and even doing stuff off the bounce, but... He also has these overwhelming physical tools around the rim, size and length that nobody can really compete with. 
And so if he isn't having an easy time creating from the perimeter, if you're just running a bunch of stagnant isolations that aren't just going to be his strength, get him some of that easy stuff around the rim. And I thought that we saw a lot of that in this game. You cannot switch against the Spurs in an action where Wemby is involved. He got four free lobs off of switches in this game. And you just throw that ball up anywhere in the vicinity of the rim. And his body control in the air is so good. And that eight foot wingspan allows him to catch and finish from anywhere. That is such a rare weapon. And they really made the most of it in this game. I liked seeing him more aggressive as a roller. And his touch finishing too. It's not just lobs. You see the one where he hits that little bank shot in air. Really impressive finishing from him. But you also blended that with some sensational jump shooting. And that was a question that I had about Wemby. Not his caliber as a shooter, just how efficient he would be on jumpers this year. Because we saw last year, he had this incredible ability to make contested jumpers, to make threes off movement, stuff you don't see from 7-5 guys, but he still ended the year shooting about 30% from three just because the degree of difficulty was very high. He doesn't have the ability to create separation off the bounce. He's not that comfortable as a ball handler. And at times he can rely on his pure jump shooting because of that, because he's not super comfortable putting the ball on the floor and attacking as a driver at all times. And up to this point, he hasn't been crazy efficient as a jump shooter. He's actually been rough in spot up situations. He's shooting 31% from mid range, 32% from three, but you do see his ability to get off a decent look at any time because he can just shoot over anybody because he's gonna have seven inches on anybody on the floor against the Suns in the clutch that is so valuable because when buckets get harder to come by when possessions can stagnate when defenses are fully locked in you have the ultimate bailout option maybe it's not a great shot every possession for the first 46 minutes a Wemby quote-unquote contested jumper I say that because nobody can really affect him at the release point but nevertheless having a guy up in his airspace maybe you can do better than that on an average possession especially if you're out in transition and whatnot but in a situation like that, having a guy you can just throw the ball to and know that he will be able to generate a decent look for you is a real gift. And you saw it in this game. He just went out there and put this thing on ice. The shot making when he's on is just unreal. And when you combine that with his finishing on the interior in a game like this and his defensive impact, you have a dude who's basically playing perfect basketball five games into his rookie year. And I don't think that that's hyperbolic. He was dominant last night. One more little thing that I want to shout out for him offensively is just how much of a problem he is in transition. We've seen that already this year. Transition has been his second most common play type, and he's just running the floor faster than a lot of other bigs. And when he is down the floor faster than his traditional matchup, he can hunt those cross matches, and it's just a problem. It's like I said, you can't switch on him. What are you going to do if now you're in transition and Nurk doesn't get down the floor fast enough or KD doesn't get down the floor fast enough? So now he's matched up with Devin Booker. There's nothing Book can do there. We saw it in this one spot where he literally just grabbed a board right over Book's head. That is going to continue to be a problem. And he can shoot threes as a trailer. He just has such 
complete scoring potential. And as I've said before, if he can legitimately add enough strength and fill out his frame to the point where he is physically imposing coming downhill as a driver and he can really sustain that contact and finish through it against big physical dudes around the rim, you are looking at a guy who is going to be the best player on the planet because that's the only area in which I think it's just crazy to ask any seven foot five guy to excel that on ball creation for himself initiating from the perimeter. But Wemby has the tools to be better at that than certainly anybody else of his size in NBA history. The only issue that's really remained for him offensively through the first handful of games. Yeah. He's not always going to be crazy efficient as a jump shooter. I don't really worry about that. We have still seen, though, the turnovers persist. He's averaging over four a game, and sometimes it's just that comfort as a ball handler against some of the feistier wings he might face. We've seen some inaccurate passes from him. I do like his vision as a passer, his willingness to try things. He's just not exceptionally accurate at this stage in his career, but he was phenomenal offensively in this game. I did also think the Suns' defense was bad, and that's a bad loss for them with Book back. You really felt the lack of high-end size and athleticism in their front court. Like, this felt like the one matchup in which Wemby was most overwhelmingly physically outmatching the opposition. And that doesn't bode well for them. I still don't see the Suns as a team that has what it takes to go all the way. I think that that issue in the defensive front court will be exposed. I think the overall defensive ceiling that they can reach, they defended pretty well through the first four games, but I still don't view it as being in that real upper echelon. And then offensively, as we talked about, I have the concerns about the lack of really consistent rim pressure, some of the skill set redundancies from their top guys, and their depth is solid. They did a good job of building out a roster with really limited resources. So I'm fine with them. I think they're going to be a really good basketball team. It's tough to have a precise evaluation when we haven't seen book, but to me, they're sitting somewhere in that four to five seed range in the West. I do wonder if with Harden out there, I'm going to elevate the Clippers above them because I mean, they are a more physically imposing team. Kawhi to me is the best player in that series. They have more high end role guys. Like we talked about uh, last episode, I may like the Suns' deep bench more, but when you're talking about the fourth through sixth guys, the Clippers still have really legit dudes. So I think the book was fantastic in this game offensively as a scorer and a playmaker. Whenever you have him and KD out there, you have the chance to beat anybody. There's just such a high offensive ceiling there. But as a complete basketball team, I still do have some concerns when you're comparing them to the elite teams in the NBA. The other side of this for Wemby, and we might as well talk about Wemby for 20 minutes because this was so much fun and it is legitimately deserving of that, is that I think he is probably the greatest defensive prospect ever. And there is some very good competition there. You have Anthony Davis, obviously, in 2012, a remarkable shot blocker in terms of his instincts and timing and a great all-around athlete. But at the end of the day, he wasn't 7'4 with an 8-foot wingspan while also being legitimately smart, while also being a legitimately fluid mover who can hang on the perimeter. AD is the best defensive player alive, but Wemby, to me, can reach just another ceiling because he has entirely different physical tools. I think you look at some of the real throwbacks, Wilt, Kareem, guys who had these 
complete outlier physical tools, but never quite bought into the defensive end of the floor, never quite had that elite IQ to maximize their ceilings. Both of them ended up being great defenders, but I'm just talking about the absolute top tier here, obviously, of all-time defensive prospects. Bill Russell, to me, the best defender ever, the best defender in the league, really, from his rookie season. When we're talking about prospects, though, to some extent, you have to look at upside. And Russell's upside was obviously really high. In part, he was able to have such an unrivaled defensive impact because of how important taking the rim away was, but he was just a dominant force on that side of the ball like we have never seen. And he was a really good athlete, very long, very fluid mover, but what really set him apart was his brain, being the smartest defensive player ever. In terms of physical tools, relative to era even, he obviously doesn't compare to Wemby. I think the stiffest competition is probably David Robinson and Akeem. Robinson had such an all-around athletic build, obviously had a lot of strength on Wemby by the time that he got into the league when he was also 24 years old, but I think just naturally a stronger frame. And then also really, really agile, unbelievable shot blocker, unbelievable hands. A lot of the same stuff goes for Akeem there. But you just can't overstate the impact of 7-4 with an 8-foot wingspan. There's a reason that Manute Bowl was blocking 5 shots per game in 20 minutes per game routinely every time that he was out on the floor that much. Wemby is holding opposing players to a field goal percentage of 23 when he is the primary defender this year. That is the best of any player in the NBA to defend at least 5 field goal attempts per game. And that is a big, big group. That's over 200 players. Wemby has been the single stingiest defender. And when I talk about the impact of that monstrous length, of course, it's hugely important around the rim, but the ability to not just affect jumpers, to intimidate players entirely out of taking what would otherwise be good looks if it wasn't Wemby closing out, and to erase the space. He can block pull-up threes out of drop coverage. Legitimately something he will do with some regularity. He can go from being the low man to blocking catch-and-shoot threes in just a couple of strides. It is legitimately a bad decision to shoot over him pretty much at any time. And then around the rim, he is a massive deterrent. A majority of people, again, will always look to force the kick out if they see Wemby come help. And if they do try to finish against him, he's holding opposing players 24% below their typical field goal percentage at the rim. But what stands out there is that he's guarding fewer attempts per game at the rim than Chris Paul and then Damian Lillard at this point in the season. Like, he is way down there. And again, that just speaks to the fact that people don't even want to try him. Like, yeah, he's guarding in space a good amount. He's playing alongside another big. So you wouldn't expect him to be towards the absolute top of the league in field goals defended around the rim no matter what. But he is there with little guards. Like, that is just a fascinating testament to his overwhelming impact as a deterrent. And you see it in terms of his team impact already. The Spurs have a defensive rating of under 105 with him. Really, really good number. And 134 without him, which would be the worst defense in history, obviously. We're early in the year, but that's a 98th percentile on-off mark already. So you're looking at a guy who is already among the best defenders in basketball, period. 
a guy who is going to make a very strong all-defense case. A guy who, if the season were to end today, would make a very strong defensive player of the year case. And that is just so, so rare. I know that I've talked about Chet, and I think I called him a generational prospect on last show. Evan Mobley, I probably called a generational defensive prospect, talking just about the defensive side of the ball here. And those guys are both crazy special especially Chet, man. Like, he legitimately is a guy who normally you would view as a once-in-a-decade sort of defensive talent, rim protection talent. I would say the best since Anthony Davis, so that's a decade of space right there. And then Wemby is just on another stratosphere. So I guess if you can only have one generational defensive prospect per generation, it's obviously Wemby. Whether or not you think he is the single best defensive prospect ever... I think he's definitely top three of the last 50 years with just Robinson and Akeem. And that's not to say that he's going to be the best defensive player ever because those guys maximize their potential. Robinson came into the league as arguably the best defender on the planet. Akeem was there by year two. But to have the tools that Wemby does is something that we've really never seen. And I think that within the scope of this century... He has a very real chance to be the best rookie we've seen. If you look at the competition, Zion was honestly maybe the best rookie minute per minute. I mean that. He was dropping 23 a night on 62% true shooting in 28 minutes per game. Nobody could do anything to keep him from getting to the rim at will, and he was crazy efficient finishing there. He just didn't play very much. Of course, he was a negative defensively, but that unstoppable offense is incredibly rare for a rookie i think blake is probably the consensus choice because he came into the league as such a grown man his physical dominance was insane he was dropping 22 plus a night on slightly above league average efficiency but when i look at what wemby is doing defensively already being towards the absolute top of the league there which is so so rare for rookies who not only normally come into the league not physically mature enough to dominate on that side of the ball but mentally they have to catch up to the speed of the game to NBA talent Wemby is going to get better certainly I think he'll get stronger I think he'll get more disciplined and smarter and that is why he has a chance to be like the best defensive player ever and absolutely should be the best defender in the league if he's not I will be disappointed but that is such a rare monstrous impact that he has while he's gonna put up probably 20 a night on solid efficiency offensively he is better off rip than I even expected that he could be. I mean, it is just one of the great talents the sport has ever seen. He's the best prospect since LeBron. I think as a rookie, he has a very real chance to be better than LeBron was because of that overwhelming defensive impact. He's not going to have the same level of offensive production all around. But man, is he something else. You can't put him in best rookie of all time conversations because it just used to be a different world. When guys were playing four years of college, they were coming in so physically mature. The Duncans, the Robinsons, his Spurs predecessors, those guys came to the league and they were top five to top 10 NBA players immediately. They were anchors on both sides of the ball. Like on really, really good teams. But that's an unfair standard. You can't hold Wemby to the standard of an entirely different world when you are talking about the world of one and done guys coming in with so much growing left to do in the league i think Wemby has a very real argument to be the best that we have seen and everybody is taking this game that he just played as an opportunity to run 
laps around the people who were comparing him to Bull Bull, namely one Dr. Shaquille O'Neal who said, what's the difference between the two of them? And my thought on that is that there's a significant portion of NBA media and NBA fans who say things that are literally not worth acknowledging. That is categorically a great example. If somebody is comparing the two, they are not paying a lick of attention. And listen, I've had a lot of fun watching Bull Bull at times, okay? When he is rolling, I mean, the offensive skill, the pure shot blocking, the athleticism, he's a cool, fun player to watch. But to compare the two of them just shows that you're not paying attention at all. And if somebody's not paying attention at all, it's really not worth having a discussion with them that's just going to end up frustrating everybody because pretty quickly in a case where it's this egregious, they're going to be proven to be an idiot. So yeah, shocker, Wemby's not Bull Bull. All right. Let's move on from the Wemby Fest because there is some other stuff to talk about. The Milwaukee Bucks are playing some concerning basketball right now, sitting at 2-2, two and two, but overwhelmingly the problems have been on the defensive end of the floor. Their 29th in defensive rating just had an awful loss to the Raptors. And I picked the Bucks to win the title before the year because I thought, Dame is the perfect fix for them offensively. All of their half-court issues, their inconsistency there is going to be solved by having such a phenomenal pick-and-roll creator, pure shot maker, guy who is going to demand so much defensive attention and therefore have opportunities to create better looks for everybody around him, a big-time clutch performer. And that, to me, overpowered the concerns that I had about the defensive regression we would see losing a great point of attack guy like Drew Holiday, really not having very good perimeter defensive personnel because I thought their back line is so dominant, they should still be a top 10 sort of defense, and then this will be by far the best Bucks offense that we've seen. Damon Giannis is the best duo in basketball. When you have healthy Lopez and Middleton out there, it's an unbelievable top four. I bought into all of that, but I'm concerned about this defense right now. Dame is defending at an atrocious level. And he's been a poor defender his entire career. But when you compare the difference of what Drew Holiday does in terms of matchup versatility, being a guy who you can't hunt, like if you try to post up Drew Holiday, there's a very real chance that no matter how big and strong you are, you don't win that matchup because of how sturdy he is. But also the pursuit around screens, the ability to recover to ball handlers, to affect them with rear view contests, all of these things that Drew does so exceptionally well, you get literally none of from Dame. Dame is dying on screens. Dame is giving minimal effort chasing guys in space, closing out on catch and shoot dumpers. He can't hold up physically in those switch situations. And that is a problem. I expected him to get exploited, but the effort level that he is giving right now defensively is unacceptable. He has his physical limitations. That's fine. He needs to compete. And really for the Bucs as a whole, I've been underwhelmed by their engagement and effort defensively. They've been a very bad transition defense. 87th percentile frequency in terms of how much the opposing teams are getting out in transition. And the Bucks are rating as a 10th percentile transition defense, meaning that opposing teams are also scoring with elite efficiency there. So they're letting the other teams get out in transition a bunch, and they're letting them score at a very high clip when they do that. So that's a problem. Transition defense is important, and it's largely a measure of effort. The Bucks don't have the quickest guys getting up and down the floor. Fair, that's a problem that will remain, but they also just need to do a better job of at least working to get in position. So they need to improve those categories. There's a couple other things in terms of their defense that I don't think will hold up. 
Teams are shooting the lights out against them 41% from deep. Some of that will just come back to the averages. They need to give better effort on closeouts, but I think that they will, and I think that things will even out a bit there. And they're getting their asses kicked on the boards right now. They're 24th in rebound rate. That is inexcusable. I mean, this was a top three rebounding team last year. When you have an athlete like Giannis in the front court and a guy with the size of Brook Lopez, box out king that he is, taking up so much space, eating up attention to create opportunities for other guys to grab rebounds. They need to be better there. They're still too big, too physical to be getting their asses kicked on the glass. I think that those things will get better. What I'm really worried about is the point of attack and perimeter defense. And if maybe I overestimated how much the back line could cover up for that, I don't want to give up on the Bucks defense, but it hasn't been a good start. And then offensively, I do have a couple issues Dame needs to do a better job dealing with traps and blitzes. We've talked about how unguardable that pick and roll should be, but he needs to be composed, getting it out to the short roller, trying to find somebody who can attack a four on three. His jumper's also just been off, so he hasn't been the best version of himself at all since that dominant debut. And as I said after their debut, Giannis needs to do a better job of complimenting him. He needs to be a better screener, first of all. Go watch Giannis. He is setting low effort screens. And you feel that. It doesn't create the separation that it's supposed to when a guy is mailing in a screen. And overall, as a short roll decision maker, uh, as a pick and roll partner, he just needs to be better. He needs to make the most out of the Dame fit, just like Dame needs to give effort defensively, just like Dame himself needs to be better out of pick and roll. And when those guys aren't going crazy, and Chris Middleton is on a minutes restriction and doesn't look great when he's out there, the death gets a little scary. Like, I think it's okay I think it's manageable, but only when those dudes are all doing what they're supposed to do. So I do expect the Bucks to get much better. I mean, I'm, again, not selling all of my Bucks stock, but when I look at the competition, I do start to wonder if I was ever a fool for picking somebody other than the Denver Nuggets, who just have such an established formula, who have the best offense in basketball, no matter what, who have such synergy on that end, the best player on the planet, and we know that they can really compete defensively and reach a pretty high ceiling there. I had some concerns about them. How would their depth be compared to last year, right? Could they reach an elite defensive ceiling? They were a good defensive team, but like compared to the Bucs, could they defend as well? But those concerns look pretty insignificant right now when you consider that for the most part, they just mow everybody down. They are certainly playing at a different level than anybody else other than the Celtics, who also, I mean, have as good a starting five as I've seen. That is an overwhelmingly talented team. But the Nuggets also have the advantage of having that synergy, that familiarity with each other. By the end of the year, maybe some of that advantage is evened out by the Bucks getting a better feel for playing together. But yeah, Denver looks like the best team to me. The Celtics are right up there in terms of talent. I just don't know that they really resoundingly addressed my concerns about them, which is half-court crunch time offense. So I need to see more from the Bucks for sure. I'm a little bit concerned about picking them to win it all when some of the competition looks this damn good. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. 
And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger basketball wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball is more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5 only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit CCPG. Org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Something else I wanted to touch on today, I made a list of my top five scores in the NBA right now on TikTok yesterday. I thought it'd be fun to go more in-depth with that list since I have the show to myself. And I think it's a really interesting conversation to have right now. There are so many strong candidates. And I have Book in my five spot, who put on another show yesterday. His playmaking was really what popped. But of course, he drops 30 as he does all the damn time. Last season, he was a 28-point-per-game scorer on 60% true shooting in the regular season and then had that historic postseason, 34 night on 69% true shooting. A level of production and efficiency that we've actually never seen in a run that long. And I give him the edge over his boy KD right now. I've talked about this recently, but we've seen KD struggle in consecutive postseasons for the same reason, and that is his unique limitation pressuring the rim at this stage in his career around 150th in rim field goals made per game last season. 7% of his shots came at the rim in that playoff run. And that just is going to make you less consistent as a scorer, no matter how good a pull-up shooter you are, because there are going to be off games and he doesn't have a way to break those lows. And I think that we've seen long athletic physical defenders give him more trouble in these last couple years. Aaron Gordon matched up very well with him. Jason Tatum matched up very well with him two years ago. So the efficiency hit that we've seen from him in the playoffs, I think speaks to some real regression. Katie is still amazing. He's still firmly in these conversations, but that is a concern that I think I overlooked too much last year after that rough playoff series against the Celtics. And I thought, all right, he's still an unrivaled pull-up shooter. He's still Kevin freaking Durant. And he is, but I don't think he's in those best score in the world conversations anymore because of his regression there. Book, on the other hand, is not a guy who is going to be elite in terms of rim pressure. And you could argue that that is a quote-unquote weakness in his scoring profile, but he's still significantly better in terms of his ability to get to the rim. And I think he's also a better finisher around the rim at this stage than Kevin Durant. And I think he's arguably the most versatile and complete shot maker in the NBA. 52% in the paint outside the restricted area. The runners are money. 49% for mid-range. He and KD are both top three mid-range shooters on the planet. Just unbelievable in their utilization of that area of the floor. He's so crafty out of pick and roll, such good change in pace at this stage, such a good ball handler. And then he is a legitimately good athlete, not a great NBA athlete, but a good one, good enough to where he can attack the rim. He can finish there 
And then he has this unbelievable array of ways to get to his mid-range looks as a pull-up shooter, but also out of the post. He's got great footwork in balance and turnarounds. It's just such a complete arsenal. He has such a deep bag of counters, and he's really efficient, and he's really productive across matchups. Yes, he still does have a bit of the variance that comes with relying on pull-up shots, but because of how we can attack the floor from anywhere against any coverage out of any action, I think that he holds up really, really well in a playoff setting, and we just saw that this past year. But I think Kawhi does so even better. I have him in my number four spot, and he has been so damn good in the playoffs since joining the Clippers. And that, to me, is much more important than regular season production, playoff production. I think it is a significantly truer test of your abilities as a scorer because you're going to be facing great defenses for the most part that are dialed in, giving ultimate effort, and most importantly, are going to try to take away your greatest strength. They're going to make you go to your second option, and that is going to test your versatility as a scorer, how much you can survive regardless of matchup and defensive scheme, and... That's the truest test that a scorer can face. Kawhi continuously aces it. Since joining the Clippers, 29.6 points per game on better than 63% true shooting in the playoffs. Every single time that he gets there, he is an assassin. And of course, he was dominant in that Toronto run in 2019. He was dominant in 2017 before he got hurt. That's going a little too far back though. But it is just the foundation of being an elite jump shooter. 49% for mid-range. He is the other guy in that top three mid-range shooters conversation with Book and KD. 42% on catch-and-shoot threes, legitimate off-ball value, and 40% on pull-up threes. He has such good poise as a scorer. Good change in pace, and he is just never sped up. He's never hurried. He is always incredibly efficient and precise. I'm going to get to this spot, and he's going to rise up, and he's going to hit it right in your mouth. And he also has that dominant physicality imposing himself, being stronger than basically every other wing in the NBA, the ability to back you down and just get to his spot at will. That's what he does with that change in pace and with that strength and with that just unbelievable pull-up shooting, he's able to create good offense in these one-on-one -on -one situations over and over and over again and out of different actions. Last year, he was a 97th percentile pick and roll score, has just mastered that part of the game. Also 77th percentile isolation, 65th percentile post-up. He can bully mismatches there. I think there's really no reason to say Kawhi has fallen off from his absolute peak other than the fact that he is more limited now as a rim pressurer. He's just lost that bit of quickness 14% of his shots came at the rim last year versus 25% in that 2019 range. That was never the foundation of his game, but it's always an asset. It's always a valuable thing for scores to have, but he is so exceptional in his ability to dominate that intermediate area and to kill you from deep that that's not a big enough factor to keep him below this. Maybe you could argue he's even higher. I mean, he, he looks so clearly better than Kevin Durant through the first couple games of that series last year. I'm going to put him here though, because in the last couple years, we've only seen a limited amount of Kawhi in the playoffs, but I do still think that he really, really holds up and will dominate there if he is healthy and available again. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying Cal's a bust. He can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my game. This year. At number three, though, I have Steph Curry. Last two playoff runs, he's been 28.5 points per game on 60% true shooting. When you are the greatest pull-up shooter ever... You are an exception to the rule about wanting to have some rim pressure to break those lulls. And really, I mean, three through five, like none of those guys have to be exceptional there. I actually think it's more valuable to just be crazy versatile, to be able to generate a look that you are very comfortable with at will. And that largely comes with being a dominant pull-up shooter. With a guy like Kevin Durant, it's just so exceptionally bad at this point his rim pressure that it's a red flag but Steph is good enough there and then obviously he's the greatest shooter that we've ever seen 94th percentile pick and roll scorer last year he is holding up across matchups against playoff defenses that are totally keyed in on him without other high level offensive skill around him and you see it even against the Lakers right against AD playing this dominant defensive series doing such an unbelievable drop out of this high drop coverage, affecting pocket passes, uh, getting up and contesting Steph as a shooter while also dominating as a rim protector. But at the end of the day, if Steph just had a better shooting series, I mean, he still would have had dominant individual production. He still put up numbers. His efficiency was just a bit below his standards. So I think that he is so, so proven in those settings. He's got to be in the top three. And the other amazing thing about Steph is that he is the best off-ball superstar ever. And that's not just the shooting and the exceptional movement and his ability to get open from beyond the arc. 
and just a testament to his ability to play intuitive basketball and to create easy looks for himself where other superstars just don't. I was talking about it with my brother the other day, just watching a game. You just see such a smart backdoor cut from Steph off of an overplay. Other superstars don't do that off ball. The guy who I'm going to talk about at number two doesn't do that. And nobody does it as much as they could except for Steph. I mean, Steph really makes the most of his off-ball value, which is one of a kind. So got to give props to him. But I do think this is a marginal difference at this stage. Luka Doncic is a slightly more unstoppable scorer because he is not as reliant exclusively on that perimeter shot making as Steph is because he can dominate the interior and then also have these flame-throwing performances from beyond the arc. And because he has a better size and I think even more exceptional feel out of pick and roll and the ability to work his way to his spots there is really second to none. His playoff career is 32.5 points per game on 58% true shooting. Unbelievable production while maintaining solid efficiency. And keep in mind, I mean, half of those games are against the Clippers, like against really elite wing defenders, and he just gave them work like nobody ever has, really. But he gets into the paint at will with how phenomenal he is, changing pace, trapping defenders on his back, and then he shoots 71% at the rim. He's got such good touch there and such good size. He also shoots 57% on floaters, one of the absolute best touch shot makers in basketball. But although he doesn't have what Steph does in terms of the off-ball value, he is a really exclusively on-ball player. What separates him from guys like James Harden is how versatile he is as an on-ball scorer. That's in terms of play type, and that's in terms of shot selection, right? He can really kill you at the rim. He can really kill you with those short-range floaters and touch shots. He's very willing to utilize the mid-range and is a good shooter from there. He can do that out of isolation, out of pick and roll. He can do that bullying mismatches out of post-ups. I mean, all of those play types, 92nd percentile pick and roll score, 84th percentile isolation, 85th percentile post-up. There's no matchup that is equipped to handle Luka Doncic. And then he shoots 37% on step-back threes and he makes one and a half of them per game and is liable to make five in any one game. And then you're just looking at a guy who you actually uh, cannot even fathom stopping. So to me, the totality of that is so overwhelming that if he were just a, a slightly more elite perimeter shooter, if that were more reliably great offense, I think he would probably be number one on this list. The thing is that there are lulls for him from deep and that can hurt his efficiency as a scorer. He can just get in those modes where you're like, Luca, get into the paint, dominate there as you do. And he's taking eight step back threes and he doesn't make any of them. But that's pretty rare in the scheme of things. Like he is really consistently dominant at this stage. He's only gotten better and better. And I think he has to be in that top two. Now, I think Steph is probably still the player I would slightly prefer to build my offense around. It's so, so close at this stage. But I do value what Steph does, demanding that constant attention off ball, opening up so many opportunities for his teammates. The gravity is very, very real. And traditionally, it's just proven that it is better to not have an overwhelmingly ball dominant style if you want to unlock the most in terms of your team ceiling and in terms of your offensive value. Steph is the epitome of that. Luka is super, super ball dominant. But I do think that Luka is in a vacuum a slightly better scorer 
at this point. They're both elite, but at number one, I do have Nikola Jokic. I've given this spiel several times before, so I don't want to bore you guys. But what I find tremendously valuable in those playoff settings is the blend of physical dominance and elite skilled shot making. You see that with Kawhi. Gets to his spots from 10 to 15 feet and is going to make those shots at a 50 plus percent clip. Same goes for Luka. Gets into the paint, but isn't super reliant on getting all the way to the rim. If a defense is going to commit to taking that away, then he'll kill you with floaters all day and that'll still be great offense. Jokic is the single best example of that, where he is so overwhelmingly strong that nobody can physically contain him in single coverage. And then he puts up a hook, makes those at 69% efficiency last year. The touch shot making from him is the best we've seen from any player ever in the paint. And that has made him the best playoff score of the last three years. 30.1 points per game on 62% true shooting over the last three postseasons. Luka's the only guy out producing him in terms of volume, but Jokic is doing so on significantly better efficiency. And that is a testament to me to the fact that he is the best actual scorer on the planet. He's not going to take enough shots in the regular season because that's just not his play style and his personality. But when it comes down to it, nobody is more unstoppable in single coverage. 52% mid-range shooter, incredibly efficient on turnarounds, unbelievable use of fakes and footwork. I've talked about all these things before, but you combine that dominant one-on-one post scoring with a great pick and roll scoring skill set as a popper, unbelievable uh, if he hits you with that pump and go and gets to floater range. He's 67% from there. He's a really good spot-up shooter, 85th percentile there last year. He's a good cutter. Like He's just so, so complete as a scorer that I think he is the best on the planet. Some dudes who I had to leave off. Again, there is so much talent in the league right now in terms of offense and scoring specifically. I can't have Embiid here until I see him hold up even close to his regular season standard in a playoff run. Last two years, he's been under 24 points per game in the playoffs on, I think, about 58% true shooting. Pretty significant drop-off from his regular season production. That's like eight points per game and like 6% true shooting. That's a big old red flag, and we've seen that trend over and over throughout his career. Again, it's the reliance on foul baiting, getting calls, that he will not get in a playoff setting, and it's the inconsistency of his jump shot. Some of that drop in scoring production, I do think, is intertwined with his limitations as a playmaker that are glaring, and you see him get more and more doubles thrown at him in playoff settings, which will hurt his production and efficiency as a scorer, but I still think he has enough flaws there and has taken a big enough step back in the playoffs to where I can't quite have him in my top five. Tatum is another guy who I don't like as much in playoff settings as a scorer as I do in the regular season. Last couple runs for him, he's been 26 a night on 57% true shooting. That's a noticeable step back, and it's because of his formulaic nature as a scorer. He loves the sidestep threes, and he can get lulled into stretches where he's too reliant on that, and it's just bad offense. And he doesn't have the complete arsenal as a scorer dominating from the mid-range that a guy like Devin Booker does. That, to me, does become valuable. You need to have counters. You need to have multiple punches you can throw at playoff defenses. It's been proven so, so many times. And I just don't think that Tatum is that kind of guy at this stage. He has these explosions when he's attacking the rim aggressively and when that three ball is on. But when he's off... He can be really, really off. I mean, the percentage of games where he shot under 35% from the field last year, I think it was like one in every five games, whereas even a guy like Book, it's significantly less. So that's the concern that remains for me with him. 
Giannis, I think, is just too limited in terms of his half-court skill. Whenever you can get embarrassed in a series like he did against the Heat last year, that to me is sort of a black mark. I'm putting you in that top five score tier. Uh, SGA, I think, is close. I just want to see it in the playoff setting. I can't put you in that top five tier until I have, and he is not the level of all-around jump shooter that really everybody on my list is. He's really, really good from that short mid-range, but I still think a guy like Book is a slightly more complete score. So I think those are probably the toughest cuts. Obviously, KD is my actual toughest cut. I had him at number six, but there's just so much talent in the league today, and we're going to see that talent in the in-season tournament, which starts today. And that's the last thing that we're going to touch on. Then I promise the very extended Carson Breber monologue will be over. But I am not super inherently interested in the in-season tournament. I think it's something that they need to go out there and prove to us is worth our being excited about. And I think the single biggest factor there is just going to be the effort level that we see from players, how seriously they take it. And this is going to be an important tone setting year for the in-season tournament. Now, over time, maybe it's something that just gradually earns respect as we become more familiar with it. But I do think you want the best players taking this very seriously. It's a point other people have made. But if the Charlotte Hornets go out there and win the in-season tournament, that's a pretty damning start in terms of us giving it any sort of value and respect as a new addition to the schedule that we should be excited about. I do wish that they had more stakes than just the 500k per player if the team wins. That's so insignificant for most of your actual rotation guys. Like, yeah, I'm sure that Marshawn Beauchamp would love to have that. But you want Giannis to be really excited by something. Draft compensation is an interesting idea. I don't know how much the players themselves would be motivated by that, but I think it would be more than just the cash prize. I think the concept of it leading to an auto bid in the playoffs would be really interesting, but then I wonder if that's too gimmicky. I mean, that's great for the stakes, but I worry about that devaluing the rest of the regular season even more. A team gets an auto bid, great. I mean, what reason do they have to even suit up for the rest of the season? That's a really significant problem. And then you also have already the play-in now. I mean, whether you're the seven seed or you're the 10 seed, you've got a shot. I ultimately think that although that would be great for the stakes, it's too complicated and probably devalues the regular season too much, which is the exact problem they're trying to circumvent. They're trying to make the regular season more exciting by injecting this tournament into it. So we'll see. I think I generally have a bit of skepticism towards new additions to sports like basketball where we're so familiar with the way the schedule has been for so long. Like I was skeptical of the play-in at first. I think that that was just objectively the wrong take by me. I think that it has made the home stretch of the regular season interesting, teams battling for those playing spots, but more than anything, obviously, just having that do-or-die format is super, super cool. So if the players buy into this, I mean, it's totally something that can be better than just an average regular season game because there's stakes to it, manufactured or not. And it's just a question of if dudes buy into that. So I'm going to watch because I'm going to watch regular season basketball every day, no matter what. And I honestly think it's been a really, really fun start to the season. There are so many great teams and we'll see what this in-season tournament is made of. I'm intrigued, but I'm not super intrigued. They're going to have to earn it from me. Some of this in-season tournament hype. So there you guys have it. I hope you enjoyed. Obviously we missed Logan here. We didn't get to talk about the Steela game, which... 
I'm sure he has some thoughts on, but we will be back. We will react to all of the NFL action from this weekend. I think we're going to do that show on Monday night, just because I'm going to be in Cincinnati over the weekend at Sunday night football, Bills Bengals. So tough circumstances to record from, but we will be talking NFL. I promise we're not just doing NBA at this point, but it's just so exciting to have the season back that we got to talk about it. And if you're going to give me the mic myself for 50 minutes, I'm going to talk about basketball and I'm going to enjoy it, bro. So if you guys enjoyed this show, the good news is there's plenty more Nerd Sesh content. You can subscribe to the Volume YouTube page to get all of our shows with video. You can also listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can follow us across social, Instagram and TikTok at Nerd Sesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. See our trivia content there. See clips from the show. You can join our Discord. That is at the link tree across our social media bios. If you want to talk basketball, football, just be part of our community. And you can check out our merch. We've got hats like this guy right here. We've also got, well, I was going to try to grab my black hat, but then I realized that I couldn't reach it. But we have it. Believe it, we have a black nerd sesh hat. We've got shirts. We've got hoodies. We've got flags. So check all of that out at thevolume.com. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Breber. And this was Nerd Sesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is Errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in-store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at Errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.